One word that we want to teach on tonight, one word, the word peace. The word peace. It is something that we all need, and God certainly wants us to have it. Romans 1, and I'll begin with verse number 7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see right there in the middle portion there with that salutation, grace and peace from God our Father. Come on, let's sing this prayer. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary. If you've read Paul's letters, you know that with each of them, he begins with some kind of a salutation. Often it's a trilogy of terms, grace, mercy, peace be to you from our father. Sometimes there is variation in the usage of those terms, but in all cases, the word peace is included. This is a a very important term concerning that he's writing to the Romans who lived in a very hostile environment in the sense that the Romans were hostile to Christians. The Christian faith was under attack. It was not believed. There were a lot of difficulties. So you can see why in verse seven, grace certainly would be a necessity, but peace also. How do you remain peaceful in an environment that's hostile towards you? How do you keep your demeanor When you're having to deal with people who are opposed to you, the Roman faith, the Roman system of belief was contrary to all principles related to Christianity. The Roman faith was polytheistic, the Christian faith monotheistic. The Romans believed there were many different gods. We believe there's God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. But if Paul wants us to observe anything in verse seven, It is that the source of our peace is God the Father. It's important to understand that because this is not something that's available to any and everyone. The scripture here says to those that are called to be saints. To be a saint is to be separated from sin under righteousness. To be a saint is to be holy in the eyes of God because of your identification with Jesus Christ. And on the basis of that relationship then, Peace is distributed. Peace is available. And in the world that we live in right now, it's obvious there's not a lot of it. You can watch the television, listen to the radio, speak to some of your friends, and you can see how much doubt and fear and anxiety and chaos there is in the world. All you have to do is watch the 6 p.m. or 10 o'clock news or something like that. And you're just astonished at how little peace there is in people's hearts. Some folks look for it in drugs. Some look for it through fornication. Some people look for it through various relationships. Some look for it in a saloon. 
But according to Romans 1 verse 7, it tells us that the source of our peace is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we are to receive it. And if you're looking for that in your life, if there's any kind of upheaval or disturbance at all in your life, you're going to have to look to God the Father. No man can give you peace. No woman can give you peace. The only way you're going to be plugged in to the shalom of God, you're going to have to have a relationship with the Father through the Son. And this is what the scripture makes very plain. Now turn over then to Romans chapter 5 and notice what it says in verse 1. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes when people look at a phrase like this, they see the language and people make it very difficult in its explanation. But when we talk about justification and we're speaking about being justified, we are simply saying that when you left sin and came into the kingdom of God, it was because you believed that Jesus had died on the cross for you that his blood that was shed for your sins then made it possible for all of your sins to be eradicated, washed away. And when he came up out of the grave, that pretty much justified or solidified the relationship we have with God. And the Bible says now that because all of my sins are gone, it really is just as if I'd not sinned before. I'm innocent in the presence of God. So I'm justified in the sense that I am no longer guilty. It wasn't that any of us were not guilty. It's very simply that the charges were dropped. We were acquitted because Jesus interposed himself between the wrath of God, which should have deservedly come to us. And he stood in between us so that we then could be free. And that's what it means to be justified. That kind of relationship means that we have peace with the king now. There had been a time where there was hostility between us. You were an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. Now, you might say, well, I was raised in church and I I didn't um, I didn't blaspheme God. I didn't speak evil of God. I just really wasn't interested, didn't really care. But God took your lack of fervency. He took that lack of passion, that indifference that you exhibited. He took that as a posture that was hostile towards him. And in his world and from the way he sees it, you were opposed to his agenda, his scheme and his plan of redemption. So this is why now if there's going to be peace between us and God, it has to come through Jesus Christ. We can't be justified any other way. And people have been trying that for a long time. The ancient Romans believed that if they participated in a lot of the different cult worship, that make the gods happy. Caesar was believed to be a god in the flesh, a son of God. He wasn't. It was believed that if someone could get to some of the statues of Apollo, the ancient statues have him with uh, wings coming out of his feet because he was a quick, quick-footed messenger. People thought if they could appease him, the gods would be happy. 
But you know as well as I do that the only justification that brings peace is through what Christ has done for us at Calvary. To be justified by faith. Now this is an interesting thing when you consider what Christ accomplished because peace is something we could never enjoy on our own. And we've all tried that, you know, at some point or another. But there's still a lot of people can't sleep at night because they have no peace in their heart. There's some people have to have medication just to get to sleep at night, even though the scripture says that God gives his beloved sleep. And there are people have to take all kinds of meds to keep themselves down or if they're too far down, they got to take meds to get themselves up. But God wants you to have the kind of peace that allows you to enjoy your relationship with the king. Sin is a robber of peace. Sin is a disturber of peace. Transgressions will take the peace of God and push it uh, to the side. But if you have what God wants you to have, then you'll be reconciled. And through that reconciliation, we have power with God and its peace. Now, there was a gentleman named Don Richardson, who many years ago went to preach to the uh, Sawi tribe in western New Guinea, which now is Iranjaya. And he spent some, oh, nearly 15, 20 years or something like that preaching to these people. But this tribe he went to, they were cannibals. They didn't wear any clothing. They valued and esteemed betrayal, murder, and deception. And they were, they were constantly deceiving one another, one tribe after another, stealing, abducting, things like that. So when Mr. Richardson got there, he had never encountered anything like this, never heard of anything like this. He told them the gospel story, and they honestly believed the hero of the story was Judas. And he had to figure out how in the world can I connect the dots to help them to see how important Jesus is. Well, Mr. Richardson found out that when tribes are at war or at odds with one another, the only way to bring them to a place of cease and desist, one of the tribal fathers had to take his son and give his son to the other tribe. And as long as that son was alive, then the tribes wouldn't fight one another as the other tribe was raising the son of the opposing tribe. So as long as that child was alive, there was peace. And so he wrote his book called The Peace Child. Because this is how he was able to convey that truth to these people that couldn't understand it. And you consider what God did. He so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And having given his son into this world, he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And do you realize as long as he's alive, there's peace. There's peace. No doubt about it at all. People can fight and war all over this earth. But when anybody comes to know who Christ is, they can have peace. Justified by faith, we have peace as a possession. It belongs to you. It belongs to me. Jesus said in John 14, 27, my peace, I leave with you. He goes on to say, not as the world gives, I give unto you. The world offers peace, but it doesn't satisfy. 
Look at what the Hollywood actors go through. Look at what the, the people in on New York who want to be in the arts, what all they go through. Look at what some of the singers in Nashville go through trying to obtain peace, never able to find it. Look at what our friends out here in rural America go through in search of peace, looking for answers to problems that only God is able to solve. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't separate the peace from Christ. Muslims, they have to get to Mecca and march all around the Black Rock in order to have some modicum of peace. The uh, Hindus, they want to bathe in the Ganges River, which may very well be one of the dirtiest rivers on the planet. People take all their cattle down there because they believe it's holy water. And I've seen people go down into that river, bathe themselves, bathe their babies, drink the water. They believe that somehow this pleases the gods. I think of the temples in India where the people serve a god that looks like a rat. And when you go to that temple, you just see literally thousands of mice and rats running all over the temple. They would not dare to kill any of these animals because of their belief in reincarnation. So rodents run rampant. But in this one temple I saw where you had all of these these mice, it was so many hundreds of them that the force of them all was pushing them into this area that looked like a well. And one mother and father after another were trying to climb in that water, believing it was holy and wanted to be able to bathe themselves, thinking that all their pains would be alleviated, looking for peace, unable to find it. When I lived in Japan for a year, the Shinto people had temples where people went to pray to die. Can you imagine that they'd have a shrine at home with the urn that contained the ashes of grandma, great grandpa, generations of it kept in their home. And when they felt like they didn't want to live anymore, they'd go to a temple and spend all day there praying that their God would help them to die, looking for peace in this world. Well, this isn't new. I mean, people have been trying this for a long time, trying to figure out how to find peace of mind, peace of heart. 1483, there was a man born by the name of Martin Luther. And, of course, Martin Luther was raised as a Roman Catholic. But this gentleman, he came of age, and one day he was going down a road and got caught in a terrible thunderstorm with a lot of lightning. And he cried out and he said, Saint Anne, if you help me, I'll give my life to you. He prayed to a saint. Well, in his mind, Anne helped him. He joined an Augustinian monastery. And in that monastery, he started learning the Bible in Latin. Then pretty soon he went for his doctor of theology Graduated, got a job at the University of Wittenberg. Well, it was there while teaching and reading. He was looking through the Psalms, through Romans, through Galatians and through Hebrews. And he discovered that a man is not justified by his identification with the Roman Catholic Church. He learned that we're not justified by mass. He learned that there is no sense in praying to dead saints. 
He understood that we're justified solely by the merits of Christ and by our identification with him. So when he got that revelation right about that same time, a gentleman by the name of John Tetzel had been sent from Rome to help raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Well, he was offering these little pieces of paper called indulgences. They were plenary indulgences. That is to say, they offered a full pardon of sins done in the past and sins that you would commit in the future. And so if you wanted to contribute to the building of St. Peter in Rome, the Pope had said all of your sins would be absolved. So this man was running around the town, making all kinds of money, passing these out, trading them for offerings from different people. And Martin Luther saw that. And the abuse in his mind was so bad, he felt he needed to address it. And he sat down and with a little piece of paper wrote in Latin 95 statements about all of this and about the Roman church. And then he went up and posted it on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And that began one of the most explosive things to happen in the church in the last five or six hundred years. What day was that? October 31st, 1517. Most people in America think about October 31st as Halloween. But for us, Protestants, Reformation Day, to think that a man stood up and protested the iniquity that he saw. Well, once he did that, he then began to, you know, incur the wrath of the Roman priest. They said, you are you're wicked, you're evil, you're a heretic. So he wrote books. The first book was to the politicians. The next book had to deal with the preachers. The next book dealt with the laity. He was talking about the Babylonian captivity of the church and how people were fascinated by the mysticisms and the superstition and the heresies of that Roman church. As he did that, the Pope got wind of this, got angry. They pretty much said, we're going to have a, a conference and we, we want to hear from you. And when he showed up for the conference, they said to him, are these all of your books and your papers and your statements? And they said, we don't want to lecture. We don't want a sermon. We want a yes or a no. And he said, yes. They said, we want to know right now, will you recant your position and all of the things that are written, that are written here on this, on this table? And he said, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. It would be wrong for me to turn from the truth of scripture in order to follow the traditions of the church. And basically here I stand. Well, they, they sentenced that man to death. And one of his patrons knew that he was going to be killed on a certain day, so they kidnapped him, whisked him away to a certain castle, and in that castle he then translated the Bible into German and wrote books and a catechism. I mean, God used a man to throw a rock in a pond in Germany and the ripples went out all across Europe. Mr. Tyndale, because he wanted the Bible to be in the language of every common person in English, he translated it. What did they do to that reformer? Strangled him, burned him, simply because a man wanted people to know what the scripture said. The Protestant Reformation pretty much unhinged the Roman Catholic Church's power over the continent of Europe. 
And because of that, we all have the right to read the Bible ourselves. The ancient Roman priests barely knew Latin. The people who attended the, the cathedrals in the medieval centuries knew even less than the priests. There was iniquity everywhere. But a man stood up and he learned that we're justified by faith. It's a powerful concept. Well, if he found peace in his heart because of his relationship with God, then we also should be able to know that we have that same kind of peace also. He's the source. He's the giver. We're the recipient. Peace is a possession. We now have it in Christ. Turn to Colossians chapter number three. Notice what it says in verse number 15. This possession is important. And in Colossians 3, 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you're also called. The peace of God should be the dominating factor in your life. Do not let anxiety control you. And don't be manipulated by your own emotions. Allow the peace of God to rule. And the scripture says in, in the other book in Philippians that the peace of God surpasses understanding. People can't even understand why you're holding it together. Three people will come through similar circumstances. One person will be ready to take their life. Two people will remain standing. Five people will walk down a pathway that looks exactly the same. Three of them will be walking in faith and in ease with God and trusting God. And two others will be saying, oh, my goodness, I don't think I'm going to be able to function. But if Paul uses the word let, that means that it's within your ability to permit God's peace to dominate. To rule like a king in your life. Do you do that? Or are you the kind of person that allows yourself to fret and worry and be overly concerned about so many things? You aren't going to do anything through worrying other than probably change the color of your hair and maybe give yourself an ulcer. But if you learn to let the peace of God dominate your life, you sleep well. And this is what God is after. He wants us to be like that. Wasn't Jesus like that? The Bible says one time Jesus was, you know, he told the disciples, he said, look up. We're going to go over to the other side. Let's pass on over to the other side. So they head down to the shore, get up on the boat. And he tells them, I'm, I'm a little tired. I'm going to lay down. He goes and lays down. Anchors pulled up. Ship takes off out into the middle of the sea. And uh, suddenly the wind picks up. Pretty soon the waters become choppy. And the disciples they realize there's a whole lot of water coming in the boat. They're trying to get the water out of the boat, but there's more water coming in than they can get out. And, and because they don't have enough buckets or have enough hand strength and speed to get all that stuff out, they're working hard. It's raining. It's cold. And the harder they work, the worse they got. Then somebody came up with a brilliant idea. They said, look, why don't we go talk to Christ? I mean, he is on the boat. But of course, the pattern in their life is the pattern in ours. We do everything through the arm of the flesh. We try to fix everything on our own first. We do what we can to make it better first. And when it doesn't get better but get worse, then we finally, finally come to the conclusion. Maybe I need to go ahead and pray. I should just go ahead and talk to God about this. 
And when we talk to God, then just like with Jesus, the Lord stands up. He goes to the top. He shouts to the wind. He says, stop it. It stops. The sea becomes calm. And then the disciples are astonished. They say, oh, my goodness, what kind of man are you that can talk like this? And then everything just kind of settles down. But then he's got to have that conversation with him because he's asking a question. Where's your faith? And he's got to ask them, Thomas, all the time we've been together. Have I ever said anything to you that wasn't true? No, sir. You haven't. Well, Matthew, have have I ever made a statement that I needed to turn around and apologize for? Well, no, not, not at all. Well, Peter, have, have I said anything that that you have found untrustworthy? Sir, everything you, you say is true. Well, what did I say to you before we got on this boat? You said, let's pass over to the other side. Well, then if I said, let's pass over to the other side and my word has never failed, what does this storm have to do with what I said to you? If I told you we're going to make it, there isn't a storm, there isn't an illness, there isn't a problem that's going to keep me from bearing you from one place to the other. And we forget that. See, So here Peter's in the boat on another occasion. He's with the disciples and they're out there again. Get caught in the middle of the storm. Jesus had told him he's going to pray. He spends time up there praying. And by the time he's done in the middle of the night, the disciples had gotten no further than in the middle of the lake. And they look up and I mean, Jesus was walking and they called his name. And the Bible says, had they not called his name, Jesus would have walked right past them, heading to the other side. And when they realized with him, they thought, of course, it was a ghost or something. But but Peter, being the, the, the guy he was, I like him a lot of times. I mean, Peter, he said, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come. So Peter said, oh, he heard them words. Peter, come. And I mean, he's getting out of that ship. And I don't know if he let himself down, stepped over the side, whatever, however big it was. I just know, he, boys, are you getting out with me? Oh, no, Peter, you can do this all on your own. You head on out there. And, and Peter did. He got out there and and I don't know if God solidified the water under his feet or made him buoyant. But I know one thing when he stepped out of that boat and he started taking them steps going towards the king. He never one time went down. He's focused on Jesus. But the moment those winds that were so loud and boisterous got his attention and he focused on them, instantly he went down and he shouted, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out and grabbed him. Now, as long as that man was focused on Christ, he had peace. The moment he started thinking about that storm, he lost that peace. Everything fell apart. See, And God wants us to maintain our focus on him rather than on our tests and on our trials and on our tribulations. He wants the peace of God to rule in our hearts. Now, none of us are perfect, and we haven't always let God's peace dominate us in every circumstance like we should, but it doesn't change the scripture in Colossians. Let the peace of God rule. Well, let let me tell you one time where the peace of God didn't rule in my life. Uh, Tiffany and I, when we were in uh, Baton Rouge, so we had heard that Benny Hinn was coming to New Orleans. And so I had an opportunity to go because they were looking for churches to sponsor. And so a friend of mine had said to me, well, do you want to go? You can sit on the the platform because they want somebody from Family Worship Center to be there. 
Well, I said, I, I want to go, but I'm not sitting on the platform. So Tiffany and I, we, we, we drive all the way over to New Orleans. And when we get there, I'm telling you, there's a lot of folks. Well, I mean, they've been standing out there three hours, four hours wanting to get in there. They open up the doors. We get in there. And so Tiffany and I go and we sit down. And they start the praise and worship. And if you ever seen this praise and worship, it's all hymns and choruses. So it was just just lovely. Just the music. We absolutely adored it. And, and then that's when afterwards they had all the other stuff and people coming out of wheelchairs and screaming and all that. But 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 towards the end there, I said to Tiffany, it's 20,000 people in here. And there's absolutely no reason for us to be the last folks out of here. We need to be the first ones out of here because we got a long drive to go back. I'm sure everybody else did, too, but I wanted to be out of there. So I said, let's go. So we get up. We head out. I mean, the auditorium is circular and it's got a lot of entrances and exits and all of that. We get downstairs. We walk out, headed to the car. And just right about that time, I realized I never even remembered what entrance we came in. So we stepped outside and just saw thousands of cars. And I didn't know what direction to walk. But of course, I act like I knew where I was going. Then it started raining. And I mean, here we are now, 30 minutes later, everybody else is coming out, soaking wet, clothes are stuck to me. I still don't know where we're going. We're wandering around the parking lot looking for our car, couldn't even find it. And in all of that rain and in that storm, I'm frustrated, angry and upset. Tiffany becomes hysterical with laughter. She couldn't stop laughing. So she's laughing all over the parking lot, laughing behind me, laughing at the situation, laughing at what I'm doing. And finally, after who knows how long, we found the car and we were the last people to drive out of the parking lot. Can you imagine that? We left wanting to be first. We were the last people out of the parking lot. I mean, I've, I can't forget that. I don't even know if I've forgiven her for all that laughing. But she certainly did laugh at me. But I had no peace in my heart, folks. I was frustrated. I was unhappy. But, but even then, you know, the Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. All of us have had circumstances where we complained, we murmured, we weren't happy. And then afterwards, we realized that the way we were acting didn't change the circumstances at all. Just had everything to do with how we engaged it. Let me give you one more set of scriptures in Romans 14. If we talk about peace, then we have to then talk about applying it in real life. And notice in Romans 14, what it says in verse 19, let us therefore follow after things which make for peace. That tells you that peace can be created. Peace can be destroyed. You should pursue the things that will cause peace to manifest or come to fruition. Now, this entire chapter has to do with how people handle days that they value and esteem and how they handle food. Not just any kind of food, because Paul wasn't opposed to solids and liquids. He's talking specifically about food offered to idols. You've got to read this in, the, in, in accordance with 1 Corinthians 8. But think about it this way. Some people believe that the only day to worship God is on a Saturday. 
You talk to a seven-day Adventist, they'll tell you Saturday is the day of worship, and if you worship on Sunday, you've taken the mark of the beast. Well, I've been worshiping on Sunday a long time, just like you. And there's no mark on me. No, no. When, when we lived in the Middle East, of course, we went to church on Friday. Friday was the day for the weekend. People had their worship services, Christians as well as Muslims. Living in Israel, Saturday morning. Yep, went to worship on the, that particular Sabbath day. But, you know, for some people, it's not the day. Because we're in church five days a week. We all do things differently. Some people go to church on Wednesday also. Some people might do an, another night. However, it works out. Uh, Paul says one man esteems one day, another day uh, is esteemed by somebody else. Everybody else may esteem the same day or other days alike. But he says, why should we judge another man's servant? We stand before the Lord. But he says, let everybody be fully persuaded in his own mind. So don't ever allow anybody to convince you that if you don't worship God on their day, you're out of the will of God. I can worship God on any night of the week. Thursday night. If, if the only time I could gather with certain people and they were free was Thursday night, I'd praise God on Thursday night. Wouldn't make me a difference at all. See, wouldn't care. But when he talks about food, man, he's saying in chapter 14 that we have to be very careful in verse 1 and 2, that we don't receive the brethren to fight with them. Because in verse 2, if you've got somebody that likes to eat meat and you've got somebody else who's a vegetarian, say, don't get into a battle with him. Don't say you despise the one who only eats the vegetarian meal. And the vegetarian shouldn't say, I despise the ones who eat the meat and, and everything else. Because Paul says in verse 6, he that eats, eats to the Lord and gives thanks. See, That's the whole thing. And the one that doesn't eat... He still gives thanks. It's a matter of choice. You say, what does any of this have to do with verse 19? Well, if you're going to follow things that, that create and, and provide peace, then you've got to come to a place in your life where you're not going to fight with people over things that aren't necessarily important. Yeah. If you get somebody comes out of Judaism or Islam, and they've never in their life had a piece of pork, and now they're saved, and they haven't really come into a full understanding of the cross and redemption, but let's say they have come to a full understanding, but they still don't want to eat it. There's no sense in you fighting with them and trying to compel them to eat something they don't want. You say, why? Because now you're creating something that's not peaceful. It's tension. When I lived overseas, and this is how I kind of got this way. When I lived overseas, the first Arab family that I lived with, they were Iraqi and they were a Syrian Chaldean Christians, I should say, Chaldean Christians. And we had some people who were Shiites who had become Christian and they stopped over to visit our home. And so the um, the Arabs asked the question, where did you buy these this food? That's the question is, where did you buy this? Now, in the Middle East, <clears throat> in Middle Eastern countries, when you go to the markets, it's usually a very, very big place. I, I'd say that a, a good Arab market might be about, you know, half the size of this town if you've got to go walking through it. So you have a quarter just for the Christians. They sell their clothes. They sell their food and all their produce. Then you have another section for the people who might be Hindu. 
This is where they sell their meats, their produce, then the Muslims and then and then others. And of course, every day, the Muslims and the Hindus and others will get up and they'll take their meat and they'll dedicate their meat to their gods. So the Christians and other people don't want food that's been dedicated to other religious deities. And it's the same thing with the Muslims. And this is why, you know, people like kosher food amongst the Jewish people. So having had that discussion, I came to the conclusion that even though Paul says in first Corinthians eight that we shouldn't uh, ever believe that there's another God. But if you have somebody who's weak in their conscience and does not want to eat certain food, don't sin against their the brother with the weak conscience, because in doing so, you're sinning against Christ. So I chose then not to eat anything that comes from some kind of place where the people dedicate to their gods. Now, typically when I go places, I don't ask those questions anyhow. Where did the food come from? I just eat whatever they put out there and I'm quite happy. Whether it's gizzards, you know, goat's tongue, it doesn't make me a difference. I'm just going to eat whatever they put out there. But that is how you keep the peace. Follow things that pursue or produce peace. And then lastly, you can see in Romans 14 where he says, Verse 20, meat doesn't destroy the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for that man who eats with offense. It's good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. So here's also where trouble can come. How do I handle liquor? Strong drink. What does the Bible say? about wine and things of that nature. Well, your first introduction in Genesis is with Noah and his vineyard. He planted it, eventually drank too much, got drunk, lay there naked. His kids found him in there. Not a good thing. Later on, you read over and over again about um, parties in the Old Testament where people drank. Because they drank, bad things usually happen. Aaron's sons were judged by God because they went to the tabernacle inebriated and they offered strange fire. The very next verse, God said, Moses, tell Aaron, his sons better not ever come in this tabernacle again like that. Well, we come to the uh, Gospels and then, of course, people, they, they like to say to me, well, you know, pastor, I mean, don't you know, Jesus turned the water into wine? I said, yes. I said, I don't mean he drank any. I said he multiplied loaves of bread and, and, and fish, but I don't know if he ate that day either. And, and I said, well, if, if you could get me some wine made by Jesus, I'd probably drink it with you. However, one day I am going to drink it with him because here's what he told the disciples at the Last Supper. I'm having this meal with you right now. I'll drink of the fruit of the vine no more hereafter until we drink again in the kingdom of God. That's when I'm going to have the, the real stuff. So when we look at the scripture, then let's remember fact number one. After the after Calvary and the resurrection, there is no record of any Christian socially drinking. Not a one. You won't find one. You say, well, pastor, what about the one where it says uh, uh, Timothy no longer drink water, but drink a little wine for your often infirmity. That's medicinal purposes. But he obviously wasn't drinking if Paul had to tell him to start drinking for medicinal purposes. Well, I'm not going to fight with people over that. 
But I'm going to tell you right now, uh, we, we've got medicine and stuff like that. There's a whole lot better, I'm sure, than what they had. But anything it's going to, that's going to bring inebriation or impair your judgment, stay away from it. So the Bible says, be sober minded and don't change. When I used to preach a lot in England back in the mid 90s, we'd finish up service, go home. They'd break out the cheese after supper and then uh, <clears throat> they come to me. They say, well, well, brother, brother Daryl, would you like some bubbly? And, and, and I'd say, well, uh, what, what are you what are you talking about? What, what is what is that? Some bubbly? So what is that? That's, that's champagne. I said, oh, no, I don't want no champagne. No, no, don't need any of that. And so the second night, they come back, and they're, they're digging in again. Uh, Brother Darrell, would you like some bubbly? I said, oh, no, we don't want any bubbly at all. <laughs> Third night, they, they come in, and they don't even ask me this time. But after the meal, they sit down with me, and they say, you know the problem with you Americans is you're too starchy. I said, really? I said, well... You can describe me or call me anything that you want to call me, but there won't be any bubbly in my belly. I'm not going to drink any strong drink at all. My wife has never even tasted liquor, ever. I don't have that testimony. My parents had a bar in the basement. By the time I was six, I was taking sips with my older brothers, drinking things we weren't supposed to drink, and then filling the bottles back up with water. And then when the people would come by for the parties at the house, my dad would get behind the bar and he start mixing drinks. And I mean, everybody couldn't wait. Then they get started and think they're about to have some vodka or whiskey and it was nothing but water. So you know what happened after that. The beatings commenced. But we don't need anything as Christians that will impair our judgment. And always hold on to this verse in Proverbs. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes to drink strong drink. And then to remember that in Revelation chapter 1, we've been made kings and priests unto God. The Passover, God didn't even want the children of Israel to... Eat bread that was leavened with yeast. You honestly think God's going to have them drinking wine that's fermented with yeast also? God wants us to preserve our testimony. What does this have to do with peace? Keep peace with people because there are a whole lot of folks that don't believe a word of what I've just told you. And they're determined to hold on to their liquor. And when they have their graduation parties for their sons and their daughters, they're going to bring a keg in and they'll all sit in the garage and drink as much as they want. But we don't have to participate. We can give them Bible for why we don't. And they want to hold on to their beliefs that allow them to do it. I think I've told you before, many, many years ago, we started the church here. Hadn't even been here four or five months and it's summertime. And one of the local pastors here in town, somebody had said to me, Pastor, they're having a block party or something. Why don't you go down there, introduce yourself, be good for the church. People get to know you, you get to know some of them. So I went down there and got down there and one of the local pastors was sloppy drunk at the block party. Introduce myself to him. I'm sure he had no idea the next day who I was. But I determined then there'd be no way I'd live my life like that and give a testimony to anybody that I pastor. Can you imagine what that would be like if 
If you got a phone call one day and, and somebody said, I'm telling you, I saw Pastor and, and, and John and Randy and a few other people and they were at the brand X and you, oh, I had no idea John could throw them back like that. I mean, they, they were drinking and having a good time before we ever got home. It'd be all over town, all over town. So, no. If that were to happen, I know exactly what would happen around here. Everybody here would quietly absent themselves from this place. Because who wants people in leadership that's just going to be sitting around drinking? You understand that? Yeah. If, 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 if we heard that, that Tina couldn't hold her liquor, I'd say, well, she shouldn't be holding it at all. And that's exactly what she'd be saying about me. Pastor shouldn't be holding it at all. There has to be faith. One time in a town out here, somebody was starting a church. They said, Pastor, you need to go down there and meet some of these people going to start the church. I went down and met some of the people starting the church. Every one of them had a beer in their hand was smoking weed. I said, what kind of a church is going to have leaders like that? Well, you can have a whole lot of people coming, but you won't have a lot of people living for God. I can promise you that. You won't have a lot of people living for God. That's not the foundation that God has for a church. Peace, folks. Peace. Let's stand tonight. Peace. God has called us to be peacemakers. Yeah. And when you come in contact with people that, that, that won't live right, don't fight with them, don't get into a, a, a big argument or anything like that. We're called to manifest peace. You just simply say, here's what the book says. This is where I stand. You take it or you leave it. But I'm not changing. I'm not changing. I, I determined a long time ago as a, as a pastor and having people around me that have uh, different positions and people in leadership functions and stuff like that. I'd never have somebody that's a that's a bartender. A winemaker, something like that, telling me what to do or trying to lead a church. But to have people that honestly love God, you know what I'm talking about. We see this stuff out here all the time. Closet drinking preachers and people behind closed doors that have problems and they think you're the one that's crazy if you won't participate. Well, let them think you're crazy. We've lost our mind, but gained it for Jesus Christ. Amen. Father God, I pray that you preserve all of our people that are in here. I pray for all of our young people, God, preserve their appetites. I pray that you'd keep them from the things that some of us adults have come to know at a very early age. Lord, spare them those trials and tests and tribulations. I pray, God, they don't come to a place where they desire these kinds of things that impair their judgment. Set your hedge of protection around each person that's here. Guide us and lead us down pathways of truth and holiness. And let your anointing upon us break and destroy yokes of bondage in other people's lives.